My name is John King. I'm, I'm Deputy Secretary of the Society for Algerian Studies, which has been instrumental in organizing this event. Um, we're going to have um, uh, a, slightly, a slightly delayed um, first anniversary um, look at the situation in relation to Algeria and its southern neighbors, um, Algeria and the Sahel, Algeria and Mali, all, all, those, um, all those issues. Um, we have two speakers rather than one. Ivan um, is going to speak first, Ivan Kishawa, who is at the Department of International Politics at the University of East Anglia. Um, he's taught at Yale University and he's been a researcher at Oxford. And he has been focusing on um, armed groups of the sub-Saharan Africa for some time now. He's been researching it for the last decade and is the author of articles and book chapters on the subject. Then we will follow with Imad Mesdour, who's an Algerian political analyst, um, who is currently an operative for the Mintz group of companies. Um, he's previously worked as a freelance journalist and as a political consultant um, for in the field of risk analysis and advising political officials and international organizations. And um, if you've paid attention to how this subject is covered on, on radio and on television over the last year, on BBC, Jazeera, etc., you, you will have found it quite hard to avoid him because <laughs> he, frequently, he frequently comments. But first, we will go to Ivan. And I should say, incidentally, that Ivan will be um, broadly, there's going to be a lot of overlap in these two presentations, but Ivan will be looking at the regional situation um, broadly with, with, a, with a look at Algeria in, in the course of it. And Imad will focus in on Algeria um, with a look at the regional situation in the course of it. So we split it up this way. Imad, Okay, thanks a lot, John. And hopefully there won't be um, uh, too much overlap between our two um, contributions to uh, today's talk. I'm really happy about the format, and I think it's a great idea that uh, John had to split the presentation in two uh, to have a perspective from the Sahel and uh, also a perspective from Algeria on pretty much the same subject um, because it offers me the opportunity first to um, uh, get some feedback, hopefully, uh, uh, on the, the uh, uh, analysis I can provide, but it's also an opportunity for me to learn a lot from the Algerian perspective, and it's actually one big issue uh, surrounding uh, this um, uh, situation we have in uh, North Africa and in the Sahel is that um, the uh, knowledge is completely fragmented and if you look at the way even many institutions like the World Bank or think tanks like International Crisis Group are uh, organized. There's always a Middle East and North Africa uh, office and a Sub-Saharan uh, Africa uh, office and knowledge doesn't always um, circulate very, very smoothly between these uh, various offices. So. Um, Today we are trying to bridge the gap, uh, hopefully, and I'm really glad this is uh, organized in this way. So uh, this is what I'm going to uh, talk about. I'm going to 
give a few facts uh, corresponding to the latest development uh, in, uh, the, in Mali in particular in 2011-2012. These are the sort of most spectacular uh, development, but of course they are like rooted um, in, I mean, even uh, you read the uh, uh, post-independence era uh, of um, the uh, various countries that have been uh, consulted. I'm just going to focus on the 2011-2013 uh, era, and as part of the analysis, we will provide a more uh, historical background to the situation. Then I will try to uh, elaborate a small analytical framework that um, hopefully will make sense of this highly complex uh, crisis. Uh, and I'm going into uh, the depth of um, the uh, presentation uh, per se and study the uh, connection between Algeria and the Tuareg uh, insurgencies in northern Mali in particular, but you could uh, have and carry out the same sort of analysis um, uh, on the Tuareg insurgencies in Niger uh, and, and their, uh, its connection to um, uh, Algeria. Uh, and then Imad, we talk about another dimension uh, that, uh, I mean, this complex uh, problem, which is um, the exported uh, terrorism, the, uh, uh, um, the armed groups, uh, the jihadist armed groups that are like roaming the uh, area, which have uh, strong historical roots in the Algerian civil war. But that's uh, Imad stuff. Then I will conclude on my part. Um, and so here it goes. So. Just to refresh your minds, perhaps in 2011 we had the civil war uh, in Libya uh, that was followed by the uh, NATO intervention. Gaddafi was uh, eventually toppled uh, and a lot of uh, arms um, traveled from southern Libya uh, to northern Mali via Niger and uh, Algeria. Uh, and I mean, one of the key uh, strategic points, which uh, I'm not going to show because I don't have the map for this, but one of the key strategic points is the so-called Pass de Salvador, which is um, a, a, a small area between uh, or intersecting with the where the borders of um, Algeria, uh, Libya, and uh, Niger intersect. This is uh, where the uh, harms have uh, come from and uh, eventually ended in the hands of uh, Tuareg nationalist groups, but also uh, Islamist uh, groups. But the first to move uh, in Mali were actually the Tuareg nationalists. Uh, this happened in uh, January 2012, and in a matter of months, uh, the Malian uh, forces that were deployed in northern Mali uh, were uh, repelled. Um, and. Um, the uh, major uh, nationalist group at the time was the MLA, Mouvement National pour la Libération de Lazawat. They were the first movers. They took control of northern Mali, but after two months, uh, they got expelled uh, from northern Mali by um, a coalition of Islamist uh, groups. And this shift, this dramatic shift in the control of northern Mali um, is something that is I mean, usually when I uh, do this presentation, I actually focus on this shift in particular. That's not what I'm going to do today, but I mean, that's one of the uh, major turn turning points of um, uh, the um, uh, recent history of the uh, area. Okay, April 2012, so the Islamic uh, Islamist coalition 
takes control of two-thirds of the Malian territory. Among these, uh, um, uh, I mean, within this uh, uh, coalition, we have um, AQIM, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic uh, Maghreb, and sort of splinter group from uh, AQIM that is called uh, Mujao, uh, Movement for the Unity of Jihad in uh, West Africa, and another uh, group uh, quite uh, strategic because of its centrality in this galaxy. It's uh, Ansadin, whose leader is um, Tuareg uh, from uh, northern Mali, Kidal, uh, Iyad Arali, and he used to be a nationalist uh, uh, flag bearer, but he turned into a jihadist um, uh, uh, in the uh, recent past. Okay, from April 2012 to January 2013, the uh, Islamist coalition takes control of the country, establishes some rule, imposes the Sharia. Um, not sure they were so good at um, 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 building a strong form of uh, governance there. Um, and in January 2013, nine months after the Islamist coalition took control of northern Mali, the French intervened uh, after uh, uh, an offensive so south of the uh, Islamist uh, coalition. And again, there's another sort of mystery in this whole history uh, here in January 2013. So the uh, Islamist forces uh, uh, rally, and uh, I mean, you have like dozens of pickups uh, going south suddenly, which is really not, I mean, strategically, strategically I mean, the, the thing to, to be done, because, I mean, it's easy to send uh, planes and uh, uh, strike them, which is what uh, eventually uh, happened, also because perhaps they were not prepared to uh, such a sudden uh, reaction uh, on the part of the uh, French. So, this French intervention is called Operation Serval. Um, it's pretty swift. Uh, it uh, manages to sort of restore the um, uh, Malian territor territorial uh, integrity, but that doesn't solve much on the uh, political front. Okay. As a response or consequence of this uh, Operation Serval, uh, we have like the dramatic attack by um, uh, one uh, uh, component of the Islamist coalition, uh, the um, uh, group led by, by Mokhtar bin Mokhtar, uh, on this um, Inaminas gas plant uh, in Algeria, which Imad is going to uh, uh, talk about uh, quite uh, a lot. And another um, um, uh, consequence is uh, an attack in Arlit, in northern Niger by the same group and in Agadez. Arlit is where the French exploit uh, uranium uh, and it's uh, from this place that most of the uh, uranium used in uh, um, French nuclear power plants uh, come from and uh, I mean, nuclear energy is key uh, to um, uh, French economic uh, uh, energy uh, sustainability. Okay, so what is the situation today? Serval is still deployed. It has been replaced by um, a UN uh, peacekeeping force. Serval is just supposed to do uh, to deal with the uh, terrorists. Uh, so and the contingent there is, 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 is much smaller than it used to be. But the reconciliation process itself, I mean, the political track is supposed to uh, be conducted by uh, the uh, MINUSMA, which is the um, local name for the um, uh, UN peacekeepers force, but uh, there's plenty of controversy uh, about who is supposed to run the uh, political process uh, that will eventually ensure reconciliation. Okay, so that's um, the timeline. 
taking the time. This is a map of Northern... Plenty of time. Sorry? Plenty of time. Okay, good. But you don't, want, you don't know what comes next. <laughs> okay, so this is basically the, the area that the uh, Islamists took control of, uh, slightly north of uh, Mopti, and their major strongholds were Gao, Timbuktu, and Kida. And there was actually a sort of a division of labor among these different Islamist groups. The Mujao was in charge of Gao. Timbuktu was uh, pretty much um, uh, in the hands of uh, AQIM, while uh, Kidal is, uh, was really the uh, stronghold of Iyad Ali and his group uh, Ansardi. Okay? Uh, but AQIM I mean, didn't want to uh, uh, be too uh, visible, and what we learned after the French intervention, uh, and some paperwork were found in the ruins of uh, the headquarters that had been bombed, uh, some instructions uh, from the big boss of AQIM in Algeria, Drogdet, uh, uh, were given uh, to um, the uh, uh, local uh, uh, jihadis, and, and apparently the idea was to use proxy forces to take control uh, and to govern northern Mali. AQIM, because of its uh, foreign um, uh, origin, didn't want to uh, um, um, be in the driving seat, at least uh, uh, publicly. Again, Imad, I'm sure, is going to uh, tell more about uh, this. Okay, another thing to, uh, that is really important to understand the local dynamics is that we're talking about Tuareg insurgencies. Of course, they are uh, politically the most active um, and the most visible also because they manage to broadcast their cause very, very well. They use the Western media very, very well. Um, so uh, it gives the sort of false impression that they are the indigenous people in the area uh, and that they are the only indigenous community in the area, which is not the case at all. The only place, uh, arguably, uh, where the uh, Tuareg are the majority is this uh, Kidal province, which is, uh, it has a, a very, very, very small uh, population. The most populated places, uh, Timbuktu and Gao, are actually uh, not, um, uh, I mean, don't have a Tuareg uh, majority. In Gao, you have uh, Songhai, uh, Fulani, Arabs, uh, and in Timbuktu, uh, you have also a lot of uh, Arabs. And Arabs, uh, both in Gao and uh, in Timbuktu, are very prominent politically and commercially. Okay? Um, so, uh, that's something that is important to understand, the, uh, um, uh, multiplicity, the multiplicity of um, uh, communities there uh, that don't uh, uh, necessarily align uh, with each other, even though they might have some uh, grievances against the uh, Bamako-based uh, government, uh, so they, they, they might share some concern about the way the north is being governed by the um, uh, uh, south, but uh, in practice, in the local political economy, they have very diverging interests. Okay, so I'm now moving to uh, the sort of analytical framework that could uh, possibly um, make room uh, uh, to uh, understand the various strategies uh, uh, pursued by the uh, multiplicity, multiplicity of uh, actors in the area. And I'm borrowing uh, this framework from 
uh, Julie Cheetah's uh, work, who has been invited in the past at this seminar. She's a fantastic scholar uh, who has done a lot of uh, very serious anthropological work uh, in the area, in uh, Gao in particular, but uh, I mean also in uh, southern Algeria. Uh, and uh, her view, which is uh, widely shared by uh, other scholars st studying this area, is that um, the Sahara uh, is and forms um, a political and economic entity, an integrated uh, uh, political and economic uh, uh, entity. The communities that live there face a sort of hostile terrain, and their condition of uh, survival consists in being connected to each other. Okay, um, and through very long distance ties. And one way to illustrate this, for example, is to uh, look at the uh, uh, marital alliances uh, between uh, groups. Uh, you uh, take traders from Gao, for example, Arab traders from Gao, they have cousins, wives, and, and nephews uh, all over the place uh, in uh, Taman Rasset, but uh, even uh, uh, up in the north uh, in. Algeria. And I mean, that not only concerns uh, Mali and Algeria, but the same could apply, for example, um, uh, to uh, Mali and uh, Libya. Iyad Arali, this leader from Kidal, Tuareg leader from Kidal, has uh, very strong uh, connections in Seba, in southern Libya, for example. So, and, and we're talking about thousands and thousands of kilometers. Um, and, and, and that's that's pretty unique, like this pattern of um, uh, networking in, in such a broad area. Uh, is, is, is a pretty unique uh, feature, uh, um, perhaps globally. Okay, so connectivity is the condition for survival, and it's, it's a resource, okay? But you use this resource to defend some highly parochial interests, and that's the kind of paradox here. Uh, and um, uh, I, I mean, there's, there's one way you could encapsulate the idea is that you, you may argue that this be behavioral logic corresponds to some kind of cosmopolitan parochialism. On one hand, you need to develop uh, uh, connections and to develop uh, abilities to expand your network. On the other hand, uh, the resources that you accumulate through this network are used to um, help you consolidate this I mean, pretty uh, narrow um, uh, network. And what's the key, I mean, how, what's the sort of uh, major ingredient or the major facilitator for uh, expanding your network is um, uh, through alliances, so commercial or marital alliances, for example. And my argument, which, is, and here I'm sort of uh, moving away from uh, Sheila's uh, work, is that uh, armed groups in the area, I mean, pretty much behave like any other actor in this area. They need to be connected if they want um, to uh, survive. Okay, and I'm adding another uh, element, perhaps, in the story, is that this idea of connectivity um, gives the impression that it's all about horizontal ties. Um, uh, actually, you could introduce some degree of verticality and consider that uh, in these uh, trans-regional ties, you have big players and small players. And of course, among the big players, you have Algeria, but 
The other point that I want to make here is that Algeria is just one among the many players uh, operating in this area. Okay, and northern Mali uh, and the Sahara uh, uh, more uh, uh, widely is a highly uh, disputed uh, place where many, many interests uh, intersect, intertwine, and that gives a quite complicated uh, picture. What I want to add, to add also is that all these actors operating in the area have very myopic uh, uh, strategies. There's no way you can consider that a player has uh, or is just omniscient and, 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 and knows everything about what's uh, going on, like the sort of fragmentation that we have uh, in the uh, academic realm about uh, this uh, part of the world. I mean, it's widely shared also by the diplomats or the security actors in the area. Nobody is able to provide a comprehensive picture of what's happening. I've just listed here, uh, just to, I mean, to show off a bit, uh, because uh, I mean, of course, then this sort of shopping list uh, doesn't uh, make make much, much sense, but uh, I've listed the kind of important actors that uh, used to operate or that are still operating today uh, in the area. Of course, you have the uh, Bamako-based Malian government. I mean, it's their territory. Uh, they are supposed to uh, deploy an administration in the north. They have people that are loyal to Bamako uh, in the north, so they play a role. You have the ex-Junta. What I didn't mention is that in 2012, after the uh, start of the um, uh, rebellion, uh, the um, uh, power in Bamako and the head of state was uh, removed by a military coalition. And then there's, of course, France, and even France, you can unpack it. And, and, and I, I'm aware of at least three uh, different uh, positions uh, in France, and in, in the sort of decisions that, have be, that are made by France and that are uh, sort of publicized as uh, French action, uh, sometimes uh, it's the uh, foreign affairs that manage to uh, uh, advance its own agenda. Sometimes uh, it's the um, Ministry of Defense, and some other times it's the uh, French spooks, okay? Then you have the MINUSMA, so the uh, UN force. You have Algeria, and here again, I, I'm sure that uh, um, Iman will expand on this, but I don't know how many Algerian positions you may have in this area. You have Burkina Faso, Niger, Mauritania, the neighbors, Morocco, Libya, and, and, and Gaddafi. Gaddafi was a major, major player in Mali, in Niger, of course, uh, since his demise. Now things are becoming a bit more complicated. The, in Bamako, you have the High Islamic Council, so uh, Islamic Association, the MNLA, so the Tuareg uh, movement that is now likely to be split in three entities. Um, uh, this group, HCUA, okay, I'm not going to review them all, but I mean, these are like representing some northern actors. The Gandakoi, for example, are representing the Sonrai, the Ganda Iso are representing the Fulani. You have the uh, smugglers uh, that do uh, business, and that, that are, I mean, possibly the guys who are the, um, the most likely to work with everyone in the area. You have Mushao, AQIM, and Sardine. Switzerland, which is doing a lot of uh, mediation in the area. Humanitarian dialogue, which the world of mediation is fascinating. I don't know if there are some uh, mediators in the room, but um, I've um, I mean, learned a lot of things about uh, their kind of activities. And these activities, I don't leave the situation untouched. Uh, they, they, are, they are part of the problem as well. 
since I mean, Switzerland is planning to uh, do some mediation, humanitarian dialogue is doing some mediation, and very recently Saint Egidio is also um, uh, uh, in the picture as well, and there's a lot of competition between these actors. Okay? So, uh, okay, if you want seriously to understand the situation, you need to sort of map out the strategies of these guys. Nobody is able to do it. I can give a trace a few lines between some of these actors, but I'm totally unable to give you the comprehensive picture. Okay, so Algeria is just one player, one big player among in this galaxy uh, of uh, players. I'm going now to detail a bit uh, how Algeria uh, intervened in the past uh, years, in the past decades, actually, with a greater focus on the most recent uh, period, which corresponds to the forced Tuareg rebellion in northern Mali. So in 1963, that's the first uh, Tuareg rebellion in northern Mali. Um, the uh, socialist uh, government uh, of Bamako uh, um, uses coercion and force I mean, pretty massively against the uh, insurgents uh, that uh, eventually uh, migrate to uh, Algeria. Uh, and you have an entire uh, neighborhood of Tamanasset uh, that have emerged after this uh, uh, migration. Uh, and they also move to uh, Libya. And in exile, they... Um, and also because they were helped a lot at the time by uh, Gaddafi, they built this nationalist narrative. They are offered uh, some uh, military training, but no uh, arm, eventually. Um, uh, but still, this generation of um, uh, exiled uh, activists come back into Mali with a vengeance in the 90s uh, with no weaponry at all. Um, they had some strategies to collect money so that they could buy arms, but in the end, I mean, they started with very little money to uh, uh, trigger this rebellion, uh, and this created all sorts of complicated uh, uh, dynamics, also involving non-Tuareg groups uh, from the north, uh, and the first mediator in uh, this uh, um, uh, story uh, uh, was Algeria uh, at the time, which uh, used <coughs> some representatives of the armed groups. Uh, and I think at the time, uh, I'm pretty sure that one of the uh, um, favorite connections that Algeria was activating was already Iyad uh, Arani. Uh, and this first accord of Taman Rasset then leads to a, a broader peace agreement called the Pacte National, uh, which, whose Im implementation fails, which triggers the third rebellion in 2006. Uh, and again, the mediator the, that manages to uh, bring the various parties together is Algeria. This leads to the Algiers Accord in 2006. But I mean, not all the uh, rebels at the time uh, endorse the uh, Algier uh, accord, uh, accord, and one small group uh, decides to continue the, the struggle and is eventually taken out of the picture uh, 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 and comes back to uh, uh, form the fourth rebellion. Okay, the guy who uh, rejected the Algiers Accord in 2006 uh, is uh, Ibrahim uh, Baranga. He stayed for a while in uh, Libya, but when Libya fell apart, he activated all his connections to bring back arms uh, into Mali, and that's uh, the uh, MNLA uh, insurgency. And now, so how can we sort of interpret, or at least 
how does uh, Algerian interference in this false uh, uh, rebellion uh, manifest? Okay, that's the thing that uh, is pretty uh, complicated to uh, elucidate. What we can say is that informal diplomacy is constant. Algeria keeps talking to pretty much all the actors uh, in the area, in northern Mali, but also um, in the south. Okay? But the formal diplomacy, the public di diplomacy, surfaces from time to time as very, very complicated to understand the timing of uh, these uh, visible um, uh, uh, sides uh, uh, of the uh, diplomatic uh, Algerian uh, iceberg. And it's really uh, complicated also to, to make sense, to uh, uh, even tell if there's a direction uh, uh, into this. And I will give a few illustrations um, of this uh, now. That's my last slide. One uh, way the uh, Algerian uh, government behaves in the area uh, uh, can be uh, sort of um, uh, I mean, demonstrated to be uh, extremely exclusive. They always privilege the same kind of uh, actors. And this actor uh, is uh, Iyad Rali. Uh, this other one is the current Ministry of Defense, Bubei Maiga. And if you interview some people uh, in, in Mali, not just northern Mali, they will tell you that these are the men of Algeria in um, Mali. And they are the sort of favorite connections that are uh, systematically af uh, activated by uh, Algiers. Uh, and this again creates some tensions among uh, in the, this complex galaxy of actors that also want to have a say in the future of Mali. Arguably, you could consider the MNLA uh, uh, that uh, came to existence in 2012 as a sort of response to the uh, failed uh, implementation of the uh, Algiers Accord that were giving too much, um, offering uh, too many dividends to uh, Iyad Ali and the clan he represents, the uh, uh, Iforas. And if you look, for example, at the WikiLeaks that were published uh, after 2006 until 2009, um, you, you see the tension mounting among the non-Iforas, so the, the, uh, the, among the uh, Tuareg tribes uh, uh, that are not aligned with uh, Iyad uh, Ali's um, uh, uh, view. And they keep uh, going to Bamako and talk to the US and talk to other ambassadors and say, look, uh, these peace accords are not uh, being implemented correctly. Uh, uh, all the uh, power is now increasingly centralized in the north in the hands of uh, this clan here. And that's pretty much the result of Algerian mediation in the area. Uh, another way Algeria can be uh, uh, considered to have interfered with the situation, if you consider that the MLA is the response uh, to um, the uh, 2006 uh, Algeria uh, uh, <coughs> then you might consider Ansarin, which is Iyad Ali's latest group, um, uh, part of the Islamist uh, coalition, as potentially a response to Algeria. When the MLA started the rebellion in 2012, uh, they didn't ask clearance from uh, Algeria. And Algerian authorities were pretty pissed off 
by the emergence of this new actor. If you look at the sequence of the events in January 2012, they asked uh, one uh, of uh, Ali's uh, lieutenants to come to uh, uh, Algiers to uh, immediately uh, dismiss the initiative of the uh, uh, MNLA. But the MNLA was fairly uh, autonomous at the time and were like distancing themselves from Iyad Ali and this form of governance that he uh, uh, represents over uh, northern uh, Mali. Okay, the other hypothesis about the emergence of Ansardin, because at the time uh, Iyad Ali was really sidelined from the Tuareg uh, uh, movement. The other hypothesis about the emergence of Ansadin has to do with his connection with uh, AQIM. Okay, so there are two hypotheses about uh, the origin of Ansadin, either Algeria or either AQIM. Okay, now having said that, uh, you, you cannot really claim that uh, Algeria uses and manipulates proxies in the uh, area and a manifestation of this is what happened in, two, in uh, 2012, in December, uh, Iyad Ali was still entertaining some privileged links uh, with uh, Algiers, but he was also aligning uh, with AQIM and with the Mujahou to uh, govern uh, northern Mali. And at the time, Algeria was um, uh, willing to sort of bring back uh, Iyad Ali's uh, home. That was the idea, like somehow try to sort of de-radicalize uh, uh, him and to cut the ties that he was entertaining with AQIM and uh, Mujao. That was that was happening in Algiers in 2012, and I don't have the explanation for what happened then, but there was apparently a clash between Algerian authorities and uh, Iyad Ali. Uh, and Iyad Ali eventually uh, led the uh, uh, subsequent um, uh, offensive in January uh, 2013 uh, uh, against uh, Kona, which is uh, uh, which was the locality uh, south of the um, uh, front line uh, at the time. So you, 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 there's no way you can consider Algeria as fully controlling these actors. They try, but they don't uh, necessarily uh, succeed. So that's the uh, relation between Algeria and some actors of the north. Another major driver uh, of uh, the attitudes uh, and behaviors of Algeria in the region is the way Algeria positions itself uh, towards other regional actors. And of course, here we have like pretty serious uh, potential uh, competitor for Algeria uh, hegemony in the area. Libya, uh, under Kadhafi, uh, was a major competitor. Uh, but more recently, France, the former colonial power, uh, is uh, really much involved and has some troops at the doorstep of uh, Algeria. I mean, these this, this, this are like reasons for Algerian authorities. Uh, to be uh, uh, cautious about what's going on, and Morocco. And uh, I want to show a picture here of uh, the MNLA leader and uh, Mohamed Sis that were taken two weeks ago for some reason, and even the MNLA people don't know what <laughs> happened <laughs> and didn't even know that Bilal Aksharif, the leader of the MNLA, would suddenly decide to travel to, uh, uh, is that Marrakesh? I'm not sure. Haba, yeah, and meet uh, uh, Mohammed uh, Six. So uh, and 
according to MLA sources, the day following this uh, meeting, a major MLA figure that was uh, treated in the Tananarive State Hospital was expelled from uh, uh, Algeria. So the relations of Algeria uh, and the, this northern Mali actor is constantly are constantly reshaped according to also our regional uh, uh, interests. Uh, okay, uh, now, I mean, we know pretty much what happened uh, between uh, Mohamed VI and uh, Bilal Aksha, if there was a lot of money involved. <laughs> okay, so these are my uh, uh, final comments before uh, handing over to uh, Imad. Um, he's, uh, so, uh, I've only focused on the Tuareg insurgencies. There's uh, another major issue that um, uh, shapes uh, Algerian uh, relations with its neighbors, and it's uh, the um, uh, war on terror. Um, uh, but for my part, I don't see any stable solution uh, emerging in the near future, uh, simply because there's absolutely no cooperation, there's massive distrust between Algeria uh, and its neighbors, and particularly the neighbors that have pretty much pledged allegiance to France. So if you take Niger, if you take Mauritania, they are pretty much satellites of France uh, in the uh, area, and this is not going to lead to um, very uh, positive outcomes, I think. Thanks very much um, um, for that. Uh, why don't you come? Sure. Yeah, we'll approach here. And, uh, and we'll now hand over to Imad, who will um, cover some of the same ground we've taken with the of Algeria and its particular role in the crisis, the ongoing crisis. Thank you very much. Uh, first, I want to apologize uh, because the PowerPoint you're about to see is very different to Yvonne's. Uh, I really would not put PowerPoint making or creating in my CV as a strong point, uh, as, you're about to, as you're about to see. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I put a lot of pictures to keep people's attention, and you know, hopefully that'll work. That'll do the trick. Picking up, <laughs> not the best faces you want to see. Um, I'll start off with uh, Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb and the Algerian link uh, with terrorism in, in North Africa. Um, Yvonne was talking earlier about the interconnectivity between different groups, uh, whether they're terrorist groups or uh, uh, ethnic groups, uh, populations, economic actors in the region. I think an extremely important lens through which we analyze the crisis uh, uh, or the instability in the entire region is by understanding the links between some of the terrorist groups operating in the north of Mali, throughout uh, Libya, in Tunisia, uh, in the north of Algeria, uh, and elsewhere in the region with the Algerian civil war in the 90s. Um, a lot of the groups that uh, Yvonne was talking about actually find their roots in the civil war, uh, in the Algerian civil war, which, broadly speaking, lasted a decade. Um, some of the actors that I'm sure most of you are familiar with, Mokhtar al Mokhtar, uh, Abu Zaid, uh, and uh, Abdul Malik Drukdel, who is the head of Al Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb, all of these uh, key uh, operatives in Al Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb, uh, or lieutenants, are actually 
former fighters in the insurgency. Uh, uh, Al-Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb itself, which uh, came into being in 2007, uh, is actually an offshoot of the GSPC, which is a group that had already operated in Algeria throughout the 90s. Uh, and even the GSPC is an offshoot of different other groups, uh, like the GIA, the Group Islamic Armée, which operated in Algeria as well throughout the 90s. And it's important to understand what pushed the GSPC into becoming Al-Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb, if we want to understand the instability. I tend to see the rapprochement uh, between uh, Al-Qaeda and Islamic, uh, between the GSPC and Al-Qaeda, uh, you know, the, the, what we understand as Al-Qaeda, the global Al-Qaeda, the, the one in Pakistan, so to speak, uh, was actually a marriage of convenience which benefited the GSPC from a PR perspective, from a financial perspective, and from a recruitment perspective. Um, and also for Abdel Malik Druk then, it was an opportunity for him to further legitimize his control over the GSPC. Um, uh, and part of the methods, that, part of the, the, the strategies that were employed uh, at the creation of Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb was to shift the attention of the group uh, uh, outside of Algeria, but in a very limited way, and it sort of built up into the coup de force that we noticed in, in, in Mali uh, later on. Um, I, tend, I, I found this map quite interesting, and I, and I thought I would use it. It's, the source is actually the Rand Corporation. Uh, it, and it, it explains this shift that I'm talking about from Algeria as being the center uh, of attention for the GSPC, uh, which operated uh, throughout the, the, the Civil War and, and beyond, uh, and Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb. We clearly see a difference in attacks here. Uh, most of the bombings and the armed attacks take place in the north from 2001 to 2006, and then from 2007-2012, a general upsurge uh, takes place uh, for this organization as they start to focus their attacks uh, uh, more south, particularly in Mali, uh, and in some actually major cities uh, outside of Algeria. Um, and, and it's important to understand that this focus benefited the organization, this focus uh, towards the south, which was uh, spearheaded by Mokhtar bin Mokhtar, who is this fellow here, who is from the south of Algeria, who is from Gardaya, uh, benefited the group in, in, in more ways than it actually expected it to at the beginning. Uh, Mokhtar bin Mokhtar was able to establish a very strong network and a very strong presence in the south uh, of Algeria and in the north of Mali, creating uh, contact networks uh, uh, and uh, through another lieutenant as well of Al-Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb that I haven't put up, that is Zak al-Para, they created very uh, lucrative smuggling networks uh, took advantage of existing ones and developed them to become even greater. And actually, uh, through you know very spectacular hostage-taking uh, uh, attacks and through uh, uh, hostage-taking situations of foreigners, were able to generate a lot of money uh, for the organization, obviously. Uh, the, I mean, a fact that actually I find quite shocking uh, and that most people don't really know about. Uh, some people estimate that between 2008 and 2012, alone in hostage-taking and ransom money, uh, the organization, Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb, in a broad sense, managed to make $65 million 
just from hostage taking and, 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 and ransom money. Uh, so I'll let you imagine what that means for an organization uh, like Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb to benefit from that kind of money and how that can actually lead to the kinds of situations that we notice uh, afterwards uh, in the sequence of events. So once we understand the, the organization is Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb in a broad sense, and, and I'm skipping over a lot of details because I don't, I don't want to ramble. Um, it's obviously a very amorphous, uh, you know, very, very uh, unorganized organization in the sense that it's quite decentralized and the power structures are quite uh, unclear and you also have a lot of infighting, uh, which I'll explain later. Um, but once we understand the Algerian link that I was talking about, the historical one, uh, then it becomes a lot easier for us to understand Algeria's policy in the Sahel. Um, now, there's a general debate uh, about what Algerian, Algerian foreign policy uh, in the Sahel usually means, uh, or what adjective can we uh, ascribe to it. Um, a lot of Western analysts tend to say that Algeria is ambivalent towards the region. When I say Western analysts, it's a very broad, I shouldn't say that. I should say people in the media who like these broad terms uh, tend to say, you know, Algeria is ambivalent towards the Sahel. I don't think that's the case, and I'll explain why. I argue that Algeria's policy in the Sahel is actually one of soft power and uh, one step at a time. Uh, uh, what do I mean by uh, soft power? Well, Algeria, I mean, the, the, the criticism that Algeria is ambivalent is actually justified in a way, and it actually stems from the fact that Algeria is, I think, without much doubt, the hegemon in the region. Uh, from an economic perspective, from a political perspective, from a military perspective, it is the most powerful country in the region. But we tend to believe that this position uh, will actually, should push the country towards an active foreign policy, an active role in interventionism in the region, particularly when, when it is faced with a crisis like the one in northern Mali. But um, I think Algeria, Algeria has tended to, to fear uh, that kind of, I, I use the word fear quite, uh, uh, quite cautiously maybe, but it tends to fear this uh, overexertion of power in a region as complex as the Sahel, partly because, as Ivan was saying rightly or earlier, because of, the because of the complexity of the actors that are there, uh, but also because it feels like uh, there is a bit of arrogance in there that it has control over some of the key actors and it can use them at key moments and place them in key situations to exert its, its hegemony. Um, but publicly, publicly, Algeria has actually been quite vocal uh, to say that it was skeptical of foreign intervention in the aftermath of the crisis in Mali, for example. It said that it was against it because of two main reasons, which are the pillars, the absolute historical pillars of Algerian foreign policy. The first one, the right to self-determination of peoples, and the second one, the, the, the rejection of foreign intervention and the sovereignty of states. And it said that foreign intervention in Mali would only make the crisis worse. Uh, and that despite the, the, I mean, I think there was a consensus over how dangerous the situation was for all actors involved. Uh, there was a fear that it could, or at least a, a stated fear, that it could embolden and strengthen jihadi ideology in the entire region, not just in the north of Mali. Um, 
But when you look at Algeria's actions, those vocal statements that it made against uh, a foreign intervention were actually quite contradictory uh, because, in a way, I, I mean, Laurent Fabius, who is the foreign minister of France, admitted, and it, and it was quite a scandal inside Algeria, that the country had allowed French troops or French uh, fighter jets to fly over its territory. And that, that actually explained, well, not explained, but showed the extent to which Algeria is actually more pragmatic than a lot of people think, despite this, the, these rhetorical um, uh, uh, statements that will often make uh, rejecting foreign interventionism. It was happy to put one foot, uh, I really like this, uh, this, um, this term that was used uh, by a journalist, it was happy to put one foot in the war uh, against uh, the jihadi coalition in, in the north of Mali by at least assisting or aiding French intervention without uh, getting involved. But Algeria thought the ideal scenario was that was, was a political one where it could, above all, keep preeminence over other actors in the region. And uh, one way of doing this was obviously exerting its influence over actors like Iyad Agradi by saying that, by, by recognizing that he and his group were political actors like other groups in the region and that uh, uh, a new, more nuanced approach could be made towards these groups, and that they could be used as 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 um, as people that could could be spoken to or talked to. Um, another reason why I think people tend to say that Algerians wrongly say that Algeria was ambivalent uh, in policy in the Sahel was because there was a sort of incoherence and inconsistency between different uh, centers of power within Algeria's political system itself. And anyone who follows domestic Algerian politic know, politics knows that for the past two or three years, um, policy, foreign policy and domestic policy have not been stream, stream, streamlined, let's put it that way. There is, there is a constant debate inside over which, which policy is best, especially when it comes to Algeria's backyard, the Sahel. Um, and that debate takes place at the highest levels, particularly in security circles, where some are more hawkish than others. Some believe that Algeria should get involved and should be active and should be playing the role of uh, the hegemon that takes uh, a role in foreign intervention, whereas other actors tell you that um, Algeria should stay out of it. And these are people more on the foreign policy uh, uh, foreign policy side of things, less of the security um, uh, side. The main thing that emerged out of these policy debates, because Algeria is usually governed in a way that uh, people come to con you know, different groups within the state apparatus, which is quite opaque, as some of you might know, uh, people come to a consensus. Different groups, different clans, different institutions come to a consensus to decide over a policy. And the policy was to exert soft power, uh, to keep an ear uh, open, keep eyes open, keep all channels open, talking to all different actors without necessarily getting involved 100%, which was an extremely risky thing for Algerian Algerian policy to take. It's, it, it, it goes against the DNA of the system itself to get involved in a foreign policy endeavor in an active way um, 
which is what a lot of European capitals were asking Algeria to do. So it was happy to let the French do the heavy lifting uh, for, uh, for it, whilst it maintained what was primordial to it, its preeminence over the region, and to say, we are the key person you need to be talking to. We, we know who should be uh, doing what. These uh, dapper gentlemen are the, are the heads of the armies of the Semok countries, uh, which are Algeria, Niger, Mauritania, and now I think Chad and Burkina Faso as well have, have, uh, have joined. Um, SEMOC stands for, it's quite a mouthful, uh, the Common Operational Joint Chiefs of Staff Committee. It was created in 2010 as an effort uh, by these countries to foster regional cooperation in a field where, let's be frank, there had been zero cooperation in the past, and that is security. Um, but I think the best way we can describe, as you can see by my title, just not happening, um, the best way we can describe CEMOC, uh, this, uh, this security organ in the region, is an empty shell. Uh, cooperation has just not happened since its creation, and for different reasons that Yvonne has already spoken about, but I'll, I'll, I'll go over them again. One of the main things is distrust. The, the, the armies of these countries and the political actors of these countries do not trust one another. Algeria believes that many of the states that it's working with are actually satellites of France, which is partly true, <laughs> um, and believes that some of them are just not, and this is quite, uh, quite, quite a serious thing, but it's been, it's been used, this expression in Algerian policy circles, just not competent enough, because Algeria has, or believes it has, more experience in fighting terrorism, more experience in handling terrorist-related intelligence, and one of the main things that emerged was a, an absolute row between, uh, row between the, the, the Algerian, uh, the, the Algerian uh, establishment and the Malian one uh, during the time of uh, Amadou Toumani Touré over their handling of intelligence that was provided to them and that was either lost or uh, used inco incorrectly or used without uh, uh, you know, warning the Algerians. And I can tell you that really, really did not go down well in Algiers. Um, and then there's a second issue uh, which, which makes this uh, organization less effective, uh, and that is that, well, Algeria actually sees this, uh, this organization as a means of countering, quite simply, Morocco, you know, the eternal enemy uh, to, to the West. Uh, not to this West, but to its West. Uh, uh, Algeria, Algeria believes that it should keep its preeminence over its backyard, over the Sahel, and that it should keep Morocco out of the Sahel and therefore out of this organization. And it was created as a sort of club uh, in Algeria's eyes where it could show the world, it could show Western actors that it is the key player in the region, not Morocco. And I think it's worked effectively, although the Moroccans have uh, uh, you know, turned the balance, as Yvonne was talking uh, about earlier, um, through some very, in, uh, very uh, creative foreign policy initiatives recently. How am I doing for time? I think um, you've got another thought. Good. Um, Yvonne touched on this subject uh, earlier, and I want to talk about it uh, quite, quite briefly. Another thing that really explains Algerian foreign policy makers' distrust uh, of other countries in the region 
uh, as I was talking about earlier, was this French presence, which is seen as a, a, a menace. So Algeria is here, and you have French troops now in Mali, in Niger, in Chad, which used to be the main base. You have uh, Centrafrique, if anyone follows the news. <laughs> a lot of troops there now at the moment. And this entire area is now seen as, for, for the Algerians, as French territory, uh, quite simply. Uh, and, and if you add on top of that and now an increasing American presence in Niger with drone bases, uh, you have, uh, in the eyes of, of, of Algerian policymakers in the security sector, you know, alarms start ringing, red flags emerge, something has to be done, something has to be countered. Uh, and that kind of explains Algeria's policy uh, with regards to regional cooperation. It sees itself as the key actor and it doesn't want to share uh, with people it sees as working for someone else, quite simply. Um, last, last slide, very creative slide as well. Uh, Ina Minas, I'm sure you've, if you follow the news uh, in 2013, um, it was a pretty, pretty big deal in the West for obvious reasons. But in Algeria, it was the biggest of deals because the country had never uh, faced anything quite like this attack, uh, even at the height of the Algerian civil war where insecurity was you know, the law of the land. Um, it, this attack, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to avoid describing it too much, but uh, which involved about 32 terrorists from different organizations, uh, from a katiba, a katiba is a militia, uh, an offshoot of al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb, not associated with it, headed by Muhtar al-Muhtar, al-Mulathimin Biddam, those who signed with blood. Uh, they led this attack against this very strategic, neuralgic point of Algeria's uh, uh, economy, uh, which is a gas facility in Tigantulin, in, uh, called Tigantulin in Inamenas. And they were able, through uh, a spectacular attack, to uh, take around 800 people hostage in a very, very large area, uh, many of whom were uh, Westerners or, or uh, you know, uh, foreign workers uh, working at the plant. Algeria's response to this attack was to go in all guns blazing, uh, as, was, as, as has often been described by the Western press. Uh, negotiations did not last very long with the hostage takers and Algeria's uh, uh, elite troops uh, stormed, uh, stormed the facility, uh, and that led to uh, a, a lot of deaths. 37 foreigners lost their lives. Um, but I think it's important to understand, uh, the reason why I call this a turning point is because this event in the mind of Algerian security uh, officials uh, changed something. Uh, the first one is, the first one was, from an organizational point of view, uh, in the backdrop of a lot of political disputes, there was a, a serious shakeup of Algerian security uh, institutions, uh, the, the neuralgic ones, uh, intelligence services, uh, uh, at the top of the army as well. Um, and a lot of people here, I think, didn't understand what was going, in, what was going through the minds of Algerian security officials uh, when they intervened in this attack. Um, and, and I'm here to explain part of their reasoning. Um, it's important to understand, again, the roots 
are, 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 are come from the civil war. Algeria's belief that it knows this problem, it knows the actors, it knows the methods through which it can deal with them. And one of those is the use of force. Bang your, bang your fist against the table once, and they won't come back, is the reasoning. Uh, and it also comes from uh, a bit of a resentment towards Western officials at the time, which were pressing Algeria to negotiate at all costs, when Algeria's policy towards any hostage-taking crisis is don't negotiate, don't pay ransoms. I mean, negotiate rather, sorry, but don't pay ransoms no matter what. And Algeria actually, uh, for the Algerians in the room, probably you, you, you probably know, Algeria has actually had hostages since April 2012. Six Algerian diplomats are still hostage, uh, are still held hostage uh, uh, in Mali, uh, or the if one has, uh, as some believe. And part of that has been its unwillingness to compromise. And that resentment it has towards Western powers uh, like Switzerland, like Germany, like France more recently, that's been paying a lot of ransom money to terrorist groups and feeding the beast, so to speak. So and for Algerian security officials, in Aminas was the opportunity to make a very bold statement uh, and get it over with. And obviously it's also an economic issue because this gas plant in particular represents 10% of Algeria's uh, gas exports, which is a pretty big deal if you multiply it by a week. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that it led to a recalibration of Algeria's troop movements in the region. Algeria, historically, Algerian troops have been amassed mostly, mostly around its western border with Morocco. That was the natural threat, that was the natural, and towards the east, where you still have pockets of terrorism now uh, in, in the Kabylie region. But this attack actually led it to want to shift its focus towards Libya and Tunisia because the, the, the exporter of instability at the moment in the region is Libya. It's a state that's seen by Algerian officials as a black hole where militias uh, govern uh, and export uh, uh, weapons, fighters, and provide a safe haven also for training for other fighters in the region, particularly those that are now going to Syria. So it's a turning point because Algeria actually put 20,000 elite troops, this is unprecedented in the country's history, 20,000 elite troops at the border with Libya and Tunisia. And it has led to unprecedented cooperation. So where cooperation has failed in the Sahel, cooperation is now increasing with neighboring states like Libya and Tunisia. There is intelligence sharing, there is uh, discussions at the security level, there's even joint operations uh, in the Shambi Mountains uh, on the border with Tunisia to fight terrorism. So. I'll end with this point, which is to say that I'm actually quite optimistic. <laughs> Yvonne wasn't so optimistic earlier. Uh, I, think, I think that we're going to see more cooperation, maybe not in the Sahel, but we're going to see more cooperation in North Africa as a, as a result of this instability, uh, because a lot of these countries actually see no other means of fighting, uh, fighting this, uh, uh, this threat, this transnational threat. And with countries like Libya and Tunisia less capable of doing it than Algeria at the moment, which finds itself slightly more stable. Um, all of the attentions are going to be turned towards cooperation at the regional level for this kind of security. And thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. I'd like to begin by abusing my position as chairman by asking a 
um, a vague and ill-formulated question, <laughs> really in a sense directed at both of you. Um, um, the um, um, cooperation between the internal between the internal powers, the North African powers, yes, but the the, um, the external actors, which most important, of course, appears is France, and um, I appreciate that France has a has a, 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 a general interest as, as the neighbor across the Mediterranean and the close colonial power in maintaining a, an overall stability um, in the region north and, and south of the Sahara in this part of Africa. But you mentioned one word which perhaps gives a key to, to French interest, which is uranium. How important is that? Um, that's the part of it addressed to you, and the part addressed to you isn't isn't it rather a dangerous game to um, to use the presence of France as part of the exercise of soft power while regarding France as the as also the rival and the enemy in the region? Um, um, perhaps uh, Ivan first, if you like. Okay, yeah, the, the natural resources issue is is, is always. Um, I brought on the, on the table a uh, French diplomat will tell you that France has only one strategic interest in the region, and that's actually this um, mining facility in Arlit in northern Niger. So of course, part of the rationale behind French intervention um, was to create a sort of buffer zone around uh, this uh, mining facility in uh, northern Niger. But it's pretty far away from uh, northern Mali. Uh, and there are actually no immediate interests for, uh, economic interests for France in uh, northern Mali, even though we know that there are mineral resources that are uh, unexploited yet. So that might be part of a sort of longer term calculation. But the thing is, I don't believe that the French have such a long-term perspective on the region. They don't make uh, very long-term plans. And I think that um, they wanted to flex muscles. They wanted to uh, show to the rest of the world that that was their turf somehow. Uh, and after the intervention in Cote d'Ivoire, after the intervention in Libya, what we see happening now in Central African Republic, that's something that was not really predictable a couple of years ago. Uh, Sarkozy um, started with the inter uh, intervention in, in Cote d'Ivoire, then in Libya. Uh, Hollande pursued the exact same uh, strategy, but I think it's very sort of fast dependent. They're getting carried away, I think, uh, and without necessarily making big, big plans about uh, what the dividends will be in the long term. There's, there is. Um, ideologically, just perhaps uh, this sort of clash of uh, civilization uh, perspective that might be shared by someone, for example, like Laurent Fabius. He's definitely into this. If you look at, for example, his attitude uh, toward negotiation with Iran lately, he was uh, one of the sort of spoilers in the story. And that means, I mean, really, that he's aligning, for example, uh, with um, uh, the radical uh, and, and, I mean, in Israel, so I mean, that that might be one driver of the French foreign policy, but that's not the the only driver. He's not the sole uh, decision maker. I think François Hollande also, for dom domestic reasons, uh, launched this uh, French operation on Serval. He was very low in the opinion polls. 
and he managed to sort of uh, get like two or three percent uh, more in in two weeks. That lasted one month. Maybe that's a major achievement of Metro Personal Server. But still, I mean, I think that there are many reasons for uh, French intervention. If you can make sense of this intervention, but the sort of long-term perspective consisting in taking control of the natural resources is not the uh, uh, I mean on the top of the list of the the reasons of. Given that, is it a dangerous game using French and France as a sort of element in a soft power approach? It is an element, but I think I don't want anyone to, to, to go away from here thinking that what I'm saying is that Algeria sees France exclusively as a threat. Because whether we like it or not, there is cooperation, uh, a very intense one, an unprecedented one, actually, in terms of security, intelligence sharing. Uh, I mean, France managed to do something that no one has ever managed to do, and that is get Algeria to open its uh, airspace to, uh, you know, uh, jet, you know, jets, fighter jets flying over Syria. This is unprecedented. And it played, I mean, they, that was a pretty big deal domestically uh, from a PR perspective. Um, so I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a dangerous game because Algeria knows that what it's now dealing with is more of a rival rather than a threat or something that it needs to see as. It just needs to calibrate its foreign policy according to uh, the presence, the growing presence of, of, of a Western state. And you know, I, I did mention it very much, but France is not alone. Uh, you have the Americans that are that have been there actually, that were there probably before in terms of security cooperation. I didn't talk about uh, the, the Pan-Sahelian uh, initiatives or the Trans-Sahelian initiatives. So. France is not alone, and Algeria knows that it can pivot depending on what is in its best interest. And I, I mean, for, for, for Algerian security officials, as I said, it was actually seen as uh, France doing the, the, the heavy lifting for something that they also wanted to see happen in, in a certain way. So we have to differentiate between the, the, the rhetoric and the actual pragmatic policy which sometimes uh, takes place. Okay, let's to the floor. Um, gentleman at the far back there, standing. Uh, I'm just uh, wondering, you see, the Bouteloupe is again standing for the election. Supposing <coughs> he dies, <laughs> is there any successor? You see, it looks like he has not, uh, uh, you see, decided who will succeed him, you see. And this is the dilemma as such. And the whole society is organized in a very secretive fashion uh, when you look at the Algerian state of affairs. Could you enlighten on this? Not strictly for hell, but I think you could first have a view on this one. Before we, we came here, uh, to this event, I actually told Yvonne we made a sort of informal bet about how long <laughs> it would take for someone to ask that question. And I'm happy to see that I won the bet. <laughs> 30 seconds. Uh, I'll let Yvonne answer that one. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I'm not competing that's all to, to comment on this. Um, so the question is, who is the successor? <laughs> I think you'd have to be a, a very good clairvoyant person to know who the successor is. Anyone who tells you they know who the successor is, I think, is, is probably... But there is no inkling of grooming. She, like, 
when you look at the India, you see the Modi after the Manmohan Singh or the design uh, uh, of uh, Gandhi family as well. There is some sort of inclination, for instance, here or in America. At least there is some sort of grooming of the person. But this is a very mysterious state of affairs, well, I, I, and it's lasting for 30 years. I, I think we're just going to have to accept that, as somebody said in another context, the, the interior nature of Algeria's policy is, is a mystery wrapped in an enigma. And, <laughs> and, 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 and perhaps someone was going to ask me a question about, about Sahel and all that. Oh, no. It's all the about Sahel. Uh, thank you. When uh, you talk about uh, France's interest or presence in uh, the Sahel and below and above, isn't it an ingredient part of France to feel that this is not ours, but part of us? And I do remember in the 50s, Monsieur Afrique, uh, what is that has. But what I want to know on top of this, I don't think that you will ever have France ignoring those parts of the world. But where is China at the moment? You haven't mentioned China at all. That's the number one. And number two, you're number your third slide. How old is it? Is that Schwarzkopf? Is it uh, Schwarzkopf from uh, Iraq who was there on the picture? It's quite an old photo, but it was this one. The third one, yes. Who's that? Uh, the who are they? It looks like uh, King Hassan and... Uh, no, no, no. no. They, and, uh, these are the joint chiefs. Pardon? These are the joint chiefs of staff of the, of the member states of Semok. So, Gate Salah, uh, for They're all Africans? Yes. yes. Oh, even the fellow in the middle, uh, the very large. Well, I focus on the joint chiefs of staff of Semok. Yeah, but you know. It's, uh, Okay. So, what do you think about uh, Yeah, I think, I think. Yes, gentlemen here. Yeah. Um, so, just at the end there, you mentioned um, some of the US involvement, which I think has been there since Operation Enduring Freedom Transfer Help. Um, you know, why did those efforts, really, in security coordination, why did they fail? Um, you know, you've got the annual FinLock exercise, really trying to bring together kind of coordination. Why did, why did that kind of um, aspect of the, you know, building resilience to terrorism in your opinion, why do you think that was so successful? Are we taking another question? Or yeah, absolutely. That? Well, you have, you have different... One at a time. You have, different, so that one. You have different arguments uh, that, that are put forward about the failure of those policies. Um, and actually, there's a strong parallel with humanitarian intervention in the north of Mali. And that is that a lot of money is thrown into these initiatives without necessarily creating the right framework that would allow them to succeed. Um, I think something like a billion dollars a year is put into these security uh, uh, initiatives uh, to create more cooperation between uh, the Sahelian states. But the reality is that the Americans are dealing with, I would say, fairly uneven uh, levels of expertise 
in the region where some states are far less advanced in their military capacity than others. And a lot of the time, you have a, a leveling of expectations. The standard is set at a certain level uh, for these kinds of exercises. When armies like Mali, for example, or Niger, are just not capable yet. They really, I mean, if you saw some of the documentaries that were being put, uh, put out in the press about the Malian army in the aftermath of, of, of the, uh, the crisis, I mean, we're really talking about going back to basics from a military capacity standpoint. Um, so I think money is thrown at it, at, at these initiatives, without necessarily creating the right, uh, the right, uh, the right programs to allow these states to, to, to develop. That doesn't mean that they have to stop, uh, but it just means that I think they need to approach these, these initiatives from a different uh, perspective. Um, that's why regional cooperation is so important, because they know what their needs are, uh, and and they need to take more ownership. These these particular armies of Samoa, for example, need to take more ownership of policies. Um, but that's just not the case for now because of the distrust I was talking about, because of uh, a lack of capacity and a lack of expertise. Yeah, a few comments. Um, I think France and the U.S. at the moment are in a kind of honeymoon. I don't know if you've seen the uh, uh, images of um, uh, Holland's travel to. Um, uh, the U.S. Uh, and even uh, some declarations by uh, some uh, U.S. prominent officials uh, declaring uh, the French uh, defense minister his best expert on uh, uh, the Sahel. He was even uh, happy to hire him as a, the local expert on the Sahel. So there's a close collaboration between the two countries at the moment. France has uh, uh, bought like two uh, Reaper drones, unarmed drone surveillance drones, like two expensive ones. Uh, that are now deployed in uh, uh, Niger. But that was not the case a while ago, and, uh, uh, and particularly when this uh, uh, CEMOC project was developing, the uh, uh, US were pretty much on the Algerian side, and this is what this was not seen very, uh, as, as sort of very welcome uh, move um, uh, uh, by the French. So things have, have changed a bit. And this, it seems like the US are sort of recognizing the French leadership in the region. And I think there's something about like developing a form of global policing and dividing the labor between major powers. And West Africa is, is pretty much considered as French turf. Uh, that's the way perhaps the diplomats see the French diplomats see the area because I mean they 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 share the this perhaps the sort of uh, yeah, legacy uh, of their uh, predecessors even though they don't uh, uh, I mean they would certainly reject the idea that they are like the the new uh, form of uh, France Afrique as uh, embodied by uh, Jacques Foucault at the time but. They still claim some expertise on the area. And the other powers also recognize the French expertise in the area. Because the French can flex muscles say, this is Africa, we know what we're doing there. And the British, the US, the Australians say, OK, it's, yeah, you know, that's your stuff. Uh, and they don't con necessarily contest very uh, uh, aggressively uh, the French leadership uh, in this part of the world. And since there's, I mean, at the moment at least, I, I see this as a sort of uh, uh, division of labor of like, global policing. Um, but the problem is with the French is that they don't have the financial capacity to sustain their, to sustain their military effort. So they are happy to uh, monopolize the political leadership, but they want to uh, mutualize the costs. Like, that's why they keep begging the EU 
uh, to uh, get more uh, funds for this. But and yeah, for example, Merkel is not France's uh, uh, best uh, uh, friend at the moment, partly because of this. If you see the debates around uh, Central Africa Republic right now, and the, the French really need money to sort of deploy and expand the, the um, humanitarian intervention. Jeremy, I'm wondering if, if you could try and answer one, one question, please, which is if you take the jeopardizing uh, the insurgency, whatever you want to call it, uh, it started roughly in January and it always ended with the French arriving a year later, so it's always exactly 12 months long. During that period of time, I think you, know, you mentioned a thousand vehicles rushing south. Uh, certainly, I think it was a thousand, there were hundreds and hundreds of gas guzzling vehicles rocketing around the vast expanse of land uh, on a daily basis. So we're dealing with hundreds of vehicles traveling every day, huge distances, millions of liters of both petrol and diesel were being consumed. Now that didn't come up from the south. Where did it come from? Economically, that's where the, 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 the uh, political economy is at play. Uh, Tamara Sech has always been the sort of lifeline uh, of the Tuareg insurgencies uh, um, uh, in northern Mali, northern Niger. That doesn't, okay, that doesn't necessarily require high-level cooperation. You can deal with the custom officers at the border. You can deal uh, with some local traders uh, in Tamanasa. This is how it has been working for ages. Uh, that's just another manifestation of how integrated uh, this political economy is. Uh, um, well, if you if you want to come to, to, to transport millions of uh, liters of gasoline, perhaps you need big bribes for the uh, custom officers. Uh, but uh, well, I can give you the border was more or less totally militarized by right through that period. Secondly, the Algerians have built in huge gas tanks at the port of Mokhtar. What I'm getting at is that in fact that vast amount of fuel was delivered by the Algerian Secret Services through those through the control networks. For what purpose? Hmm? For what purpose? Oh I couldn't go into that I'll leave that basically because if you take all the all the Islamist groups that you mentioned, everyone without exception, the leadership uh, of all of them have been half dozen there was intimately connected with the Algerian Secret Service to the US. Neither, neither, neither of you actually mentioned throughout the, the talks, but from the very end, uh, within Amanas. So the actual leaderships of those groups, particularly Acme, uh, Iyad, um, Jal, and, and, and the others, were all and have been connected with the Algerian US for a very long time. Uh, and they were the elephant in the room that we didn't mention, I think, during the two talks, and that's where the tool was coming from. That's kind of what you look like. I think the mystery and the enigma are coming into play there again, actually. It's <laughs> um, Lady there. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, so you were talking about the US and French being quite involved in the region. Would you say that they are the ones who are leading the, the counterterrorism <coughs> efforts? And what exactly is the framework in place? What, what methods do they use to counter? 
mention interrogation, torture, um, drones, you mentioned drones coming in. I think one really interesting thing about what's going on in the Sahel is that you have an unprecedented means of cooperation between these different actors as opposed to uh, what you might have had in other sort of hotspots around the world. Um, one, I'll, I'll talk about one thing, one trend that is new in the Sahel that, that, that maybe, that, and it's following other trends around the world in terms of the war on terror, the use of drones. Uh, is something which is very, very new uh, because before I think you had a tendency of cooperation at the intelligence level to target, to uh, chase. Uh, for example, one key uh, uh, lieutenant of Al Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb that I touched on earlier, Abdel Zak Al Para, who is a big, big name in, uh, in, in, in this whole uh, region was actually apprehended as a result of a very complex and serious operation which resulted in a, which came about as a result of cooperation between Western and local uh, actors. Um, the, drones, the drones are something new because they, um, they, they were used, for example, uh, uh, to, to help uh, French troops, Chadian troops in the north of Mali to go after key figures. Abu Zaid is one of them. Uh, he's another actor that I mentioned earlier. Um, but I, this cooperation is quite, it's, it's quite, it's very different because you don't, you're not dealing, first of all, with the same topography as other uh, hotspots, which I'm sure is the parallel that's often brought uh, in people's minds. You're not dealing with the same topography, you're not dealing with the same <coughs> actors, and uh, cooperation is a lot less, uh, less easy. The good thing is that the Algerians are very happy to cooperate now with the Americans and the French because it gives them, again, that thing that they crave the most, that is the preeminence in the eyes of Westerners as the major uh, you know, the terrorism experts in the region. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I'm just throwing ideas. Towards the end of your talk, you, you mentioned that one of the results of the Inamina's attack with these uh, changes in, in the Algerian military. And we have over the past few months we've seen um, General Tartai, who, who, who led the, the violent response, he's been replaced, and uh, who's head of the interior um, part of the DRS. And of course, the head of the exterior part of the DRS, General Dali, who, who you notice was dealing with relations with Bamako um, has also been replaced, and then there have been loads of other changes since then. One of the other narratives, which is not mutually exclusive, but people have said that, that these changes are in fact to do with this question of the succession or replacement of Bokhuta Fika. And so what I'm wondering, in the context of what you're talking about, is whether the changes we're seeing imply a sort of a renewed focus on on sort of doing the job down in, in the Sahel, or whether there's a danger that the Algerian military is, is being quite seriously distracted by domestic political affairs, maybe to the detriment of effective um, uh, control of its interests. Interest in I, I think I'd say the next question first. It's, I think it's neither one or the other. Uh, the, 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 
it, there's no doubt about the fact that some of these changes that were made are made in the backdrop of a very serious political moment in Algeria's history. Um, you have, uh, in my opinion, I think in the opinion of many analysts, a complete reconfiguration actually now uh, at the top of the Algerian state of clan structures, power structures, call it whatever you want to call it. Um, and that, that had some effect. Uh, even before any of these dismissals were made or any of these changes were made, that had an effect already on policy uh, from two or three years ago. Without any of these changes, uh, I think there was an understanding that policy needed to be, there was an understanding amongst these key groups. And again, we're really in the realm of speculation as always because you know better than I do that as a political system, it's very difficult to understand the exact details of what's going on. You can only speculate. So, but there was an understanding, I think, amongst these groups that policy, security policy, uh, in the backdrop of these political disputes, were were being. Um, I mean, security policy was not as effective as it used to be as a result of these disputes, and so you had a lot of infighting over which institutions take preeminence, who who is going to be dismissed, who is the faulty one. And you have something unprecedented, as you know, uh, in, in the last the last few months. You have something unprecedented in Algerian politics, and that is that the military institution, uh, in the eyes of the public and in the eyes of the press, have taken now a central role in public debate. Uh, not as an actor, not as a vocal actor, not so much as that, but as a, the, the target for criticism or the target of uh, defense. Uh, when Saidani came up against uh, the military institution, particularly the DRS, you saw an absolute flood of support from Algerian private press. So all of these shifts reflect something far more complex, I think, than just uh, pragmatic uh, pragmatic shifts to improve security or political disputes. They're, 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 as usual with Algeria, a mix of both. You know, I commented last week, the final one on, on those issues. Um, not on this issue. Perhaps on the questions quickly. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, it's about the, the, the form of counterterrorism activities. So the French and the US are cooperating. They're also sharing intelligence with uh, the Algerians. But they're, they're using drones heavily. They're using uh, uh, high-tech uh, stuff to uh, listen to conversations. And the are uh, very easily act. But um, also they're using local groups as uh, potential proxies. And this is where I think uh, there's a sort of dangerous uh, a danger, because um, you remember this model of connectivity. Now uh, it's okay for a local group to uh, be part of this wider uh, war against uh, terror, and this means uh, this this is a new way for some groups to channel resources, and this has a powerful. Um, distortive effect on uh, local uh, political uh, uh, equilibria. Take the case of these of a few Idnan leaders. So the Idnans are a Tuareg uh, tribe in, in uh, Kidal who portrayed themselves as uh, the best uh, auxiliaries of the French. And they don't even hide the fact that they gave GPS coordinates for targets uh, during uh, uh, Serval. And they, some 
that they took advantage of this privileged connection with the French to also uh, carve out some political influence and even um, get access to commercial hub like uh, one on the border called Ibn Khalil at the expense of Arab groups claiming that these Arab groups were terrorists uh, just as a way to, I mean, to uh, gain French support so that they could defeat them eventually. So this is where it, I mean, things are being like complicated and this is where political consequences of the war on terror are not being controlled at all. Uh, and so this is what's happening in Mali now, but the next frontier are uh, uh, southern Niger, northern Nigeria, around Boko Haram in Difa area, and uh, southern uh, uh, Libya. And these are potentially the next front. And in these areas as well, you see uh, the French, but also local communities um, organizing themselves as potential partners uh, in the war against uh, terror, and even traveling to Paris, sending uh, envoys and saying, okay, we are, your, we are your local proxies, count on us, and we will defeat the terrorists. And they accuse other competitors of being the hosts of the terrorists. That's what's happening now. And this, I don't know where this is going to uh, lead, but uh, this is a murky game. Emad was uh, optimistic. He said, "I think that's a rather, rather alarming note to end on." But it will have to be the end, I'm afraid, because at, uh, at eight o'clock we all get turned off. Thank you very, very much indeed.